Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me there to Joel chapter 1. It's an Old Testament book. It's one of the minor prophets, which means if you thumb through the Old Testament too quick, you're going to miss it, and then you're going to go back and try to find it, and you're going to miss it, and then you're going to go forward and miss it again, uh, because it's really small. It's really short. It's only about three chapters, Joel chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 712, Joel Chapter 1 is where we are this morning, and we're starting a new series uh, today called Holy Roar, God is Louder Than, God is Louder Than, and over the next couple weeks we're going to take a look at the different ways that God is louder than something else, and today I just want you to know this, God is louder than than the world we live in. The roar of God is louder than the world that we live in. And in Joel chapter 1, we see a little bit about this, and we'll get to that in a minute. But a number of weeks ago, I was sensing that, that uh, God was leading me to really change the direction of the series for the month of November. Uh, early early uh, a couple months ago, I thought I had a direction for it. I thought I knew where we wanted to go. And then something began to uh, happen, something, quote unquote, right? The Spirit of God became, uh, continued to speak to me. Uh, over the past few weeks of changing the direction and in changing uh, where we should go and, and giving it just a different thought. I began sensing something else. And I thought about it this way, that, that the world that we live in, I don't know if you sense it, but the world that we live in is really loud. You ever notice that? That the world that we live in is really loud. The world that that, that, that we encounter every single day, it, it just screams at us. It shouts at us. I mean, we can't even turn on uh, 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 the television and news channels without having uh, screaming matches with the people on news. It's so bad it, it filters into sports, right? I mean, Sports is supposed to be a place where we can we can find respite from from the real world out there, and then you turn on these sports channels, and and the commentators on the sports shows are screaming at each other about different things. The world is loud, and the world doesn't want to debate either. They really, the world doesn't really want to debate, right? I'm sure you've seen it in your workplace. I'm sure you see it in your schools. I'm sure you see it in the classrooms where you are, in the hallways that you walk. We don't want debate. We don't want to chat. We don't want to talk to each other. We don't want a good, let us come now and and reason together. We don't want to reason together anymore. We just want to scream at each other. We just want to yell. In fact, we really don't even want to hear the other person's point of view. We just want you to adopt blindly our point of view. There's no talking anymore. There's no encouragement. There's not a lot of words spoken in love anymore. We just scream. Voices are all around us telling us what to believe, telling us how to act, what causes we should value. We have friends and family speaking into us, mentors, coaches that are guiding us. We have leaders giving direction, bosses giving feedback, and the media screaming at us. Media experts, social media influencers, and they impact every generation. 
Every generation has their own version of somebody screaming at them what they should think, what they should believe. And over the last number of weeks, I've just been thinking that the world is so loud and we've grown accustomed to it. And this is where I I began to think about this series. The world is so loud and the enemy of God is so subtle and so deceptive and so stealthy. You see, we think that the challenges at times, we think in our culture that the challenges are what we're screaming about. And while those have very real impact and influence on us, the enemy is subtly using the screaming matches to infiltrate our lives. The enemy is using the topic of the day to subtly whisper in our ear. The enemy is using the loudness and the volume and the flashing lights of the culture that we live in to subtly sneak up to us and begin to uh, moment by moment, increment by increment, subtly change our, our thoughts and our directions away from God into something else. The enemy of God is so good at distracting us. The enemy of God uses the volume of the world to turn our hearts away from God himself. The enemy in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that the enemy prowls around like a lion. You remember this passage? The enemy prowls around like a lion looking to devour people. The volume of life the loudness of the world subtly begins to drown out the influence and the leading and the voice of God in our lives. And we think it's the issue that's taking people away from God. We think it's the topic that's taking people away from God. It's the enemy of God taking people away. Using the topics, using the issues... But doesn't Paul remind us in the New Testament that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling a spiritual battle. The enemy prowls around, not not necessarily boldly at first. We simply get distracted, right? It's not it's not boldly first for you and me. We just get distracted. Oh, I'll, I'm I'm distracted by what's going on over here. I'll read the scriptures later. I'm distracted with what's going on uh, in my everyday routine. I'll, I'll pray at another time. We get distracted. And if you're like me, you know what happens with later and another time, right? They never come. Later and another time never manifest themselves. It turns into tomorrow. I'll pray tomorrow. I'll read the scriptures tomorrow. I'll connect to God tomorrow. And you know what happens with tomorrow, right? Tomorrow becomes next week. Next week, I'll do that. Next week, I'll lean into what God is doing. You know, I'm I'm really busy right now. I'm really, uh, and so it's subtle. Little by little, we're distracted. Little by little, we change the, 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 uh, the direction and the course heading of our lives. 
Not drastically. Just, just a little bit. And you know what happens after a little heading change over a long period of time, don't you? Pretty soon you're way off course. And we didn't even know it. So it's not, it's not, not necessarily boldly that the enemy sometimes distracts us, but it's also not necessarily frequently at first. It's every now and then. Every now and then we stop visiting with people who encourage us. Every now and then we slip into a pattern of behavior that we know that we know we shouldn't be doing. But you know what? Who knows? Who cares? Nobody's going to really see. It's just every now and then. Every now and then we miss gathering together in worship. Every now and then we, we, we miss our small group. Every now and then we stop meeting with the people of God to encourage us. It's, it's, it's just every now and then. It's not a big deal, right? It's not frequent. It's not bold. It's just every now and then. But we know what happens with now and then, don't we? It becomes every day. It becomes every week. And you know what the great revealer of this was? You guys know this. We all know this. The great revealer of this was COVID. The great revealer of that was COVID. Because almost every church in America, after the COVID restrictions were lifted and people could come back, saw a 50% decline in attendance. I don't have a hard statistic for that today. I could find one if you really want me to find one. I don't think, I don't have a hard one today. It's, it's, mere, it's mere anecdotal, but I mean, would we argue that? COVID was the great revealer. It showed us that, 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 that the every now and then, when it became an every day or every week, and then we had the opportunity to go back, we just, some of, now it's hard to say you because you're here today. But we felt it, right? Our friends feel it. And we wonder, hey, where are people? And this isn't meant to make you guilty. I mean, I'm all good. Like, I'm all, take your vacation, take your family time. You need a weekend away, go do your weekend away. That's fine with me. I'm the last person who's going to ask you about church attendance and that that being an act of your spirituality. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what kind of pattern and rhythms and lifestyle are we living? Because I think, I think as the world screams and shouts at us, the enemy of God is using that in small and subtle ways to disorient us and move us away from him. The world is loud and we need something louder. In Joel chapter 3 verse 16 it says this, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. I'm, I'm burdened today. I'm bothered today by the deception of the enemy. I'm bothered and I'm burdened by the way that the enemy quietly prowls around by the way that the devil just circles our lives looking for any kind of, 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 of weakness, any kind of entry point where the enemy can, can leap in and begin 
to devour us. Any place in the circles of our life, through the noise of the world, to drown out the voice of God. Is God so quiet that we can't hear Him? Is God quiet? Is God so absent that we can't see Him? Is God so meek that we can't even confront our own culture? Is God quiet? And I thought, I thought, no. God's not quiet. God isn't, God isn't so meek that we, he doesn't move. God isn't so quiet that we can't hear him. God does move, right? God does act. God does confront people. God does speak. God, God doesn't prowl around. God roars from thunder and heaven. God roars from where he lives. God thunders into our culture. God roars into my life and to your life. This is how things should be. This is how we should live. This is where you should go. Listen to me. Draw close to me. And I will roar into your life. God is not silent. God is not quiet. God doesn't prowl around looking for soft spaces to lead you away. God thunders into our world and draws us to him. God roars for us. And what is the promise of of Joel? Promise of chapter 3 verse 16 is that as he roars from Zion and his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth quake, the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for his people. And so I thought, huh, if God roars, why don't we talk about that? Why don't we take a few weeks and talk about how God roars in our lives over and above the noise of the world? Because the volume of our culture will not diminish. I'm just telling you that. The volume of our culture will not diminish. The question is, will we hear God's holy roar and rise above it? Will we be people who take the instruction of God, who take the values of God, who take the character of God, the principles and His priority, and apply them to our lives so that we would be people who model and live out that holy roar, that holy thunder in the course of our everyday living? Would we be those kind of people? And so, for the next few weeks, I just want us to consider that perhaps, perhaps, God wants us God wants to use us and use our lives and use our story and use our testimony to roar from Zion. Because the reality is we're not going to walk out today and audibly hear God roar something. You know how we hear his roar? Through our testimony. Through our lives. Through you and me standing up for what we know is right and what we know is true. For you and me. Not to be oppressive, not to push away, but in gentleness and in humility and in love and compassion. And in moments, and in moments of confrontation when it needs to be, but with truth and love, we speak to others. 
That is how God roars into our culture. That is how he thunders. It's through you and me as we listen to his word. Joel chapter 1 says this. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Hear this. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Has such a thing happened in your days? What is going on? Joel is getting this, this word from God, and the word from God that Joel is getting is, is to tell the people, hey, something's happening. Something's going on. Like, you and I, we need to pay attention to what's going on in the world. We need to pay attention. And in these first three verses, Joel is just saying, hey, something is going on. Give ear. Hear this. We need to listen to what has happened. Has such a thing. When I read those words, has such a thing, I'm like, man, what is going on? What's going on in the world where where Joel is like pleading with the people to listen to what's going on? And then did you see, if you look at it in your Bible, verse 3, tell your children of it. Okay, well, I get that. Let's warn our children. Then let your children tell their children. Oh, okay, so there's like a whole nother generation that needs to pay attention to this. And their children to another generation. Okay, now something big's going on. It's not just a here and now. It's a thing that's going to happen and continue for generations moving forward. What is going on? What do I need to pay attention to? What do I need to be drawn to? How big is this if generations need to be warned? Verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. And so as we begin to read this, what do we make of it? What is Joel trying to say to us? First of all, we have to understand this. It's prophecy. So Joel is is warning people about something that's going to happen. Joel is warning people of something that is coming, something that maybe is happening currently and we need to open our eyes to it, and something that will be coming down the road. It is God's God's instruction through someone to a larger group of people. I need to tell you this. I'm getting this from God. And he uses a metaphor, a metaphor that, that they would understand. It's a metaphor that's based in reality, the locust. The locusts are coming and they're devouring everything. Now, they would understand this culturally and agriculturally because it would not be uncommon for in that time and place for locusts to come and destroy their crops. 
So he uses a metaphor that they would understand and maybe, if it was a bad year, actually see play out. So Joel is using this metaphor to warn them about something that is coming that is so so impactful. You better tell the generations. This isn't just for you, but it's for all the generations. The locusts are eating away at the crops. They're not leaving anything behind. The locusts have come to eat away at the crops, destroying everything. Verse 6, for a nation has come up. Now here's the reality. And in Joel's time and in Joel's period, he's warning Israel, a theocracy, he's warning Israel, there's a nation, there are nations coming to destroy. The life that you have, the faith that you live, and your connection to God. There are nations coming to destroy you. And as we hold on to this prophecy in our day, as we hold on to this book that that God has seen fit to keep in our hands, we ask this question. What are the locusts of our day? What are they destroying in our lives? The locusts are, are swarming and the locusts are eating and the locusts are devouring. It's a, it's a language that, that speaks to us about being aware and alert to what's happening in our own hearts and spirits today. Joel, in his, in his chapters that come, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he goes on and he talks about realizing what is happening now because the day of the Lord is coming. There's this whole idea that we have to keep our eyes and, our, and our, our attention on the future. Yes, the day of the Lord is coming, but as we keep our eyes down the field to when that's happening, there is something that we need to give attention to right now. That if we don't pay attention to what the locust is eating right now, will we be able to? Will we be able to enter and enjoy the day of the Lord later? Will we be able There is an enemy rising up that wants to devour the nation of God, the people of God. The locusts are coming and eating and devouring everything. Verse 7. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down and their branches are made white. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And verse 12, check this out in your Bible in verse 12. And gladness dries up from the children 
of man. The enemy that is coming and, and advancing and, and destroying is destroying every aspect of life. It's social. It's economical. It's about hopes and dreams. And it impacts worship. It destroys everything. The enemy of God prowls around looking for someone to destroy. And when he chooses to destroy, he doesn't just destroy partially, he destroys everything. Think about it in our culture. Think about it from society, from our economy, how it impacts our families. What screams to us in moments of our own weakness, what screams to us as some kind of pleasure that we could indulge and, and, and give into for maybe just a moment, what does it matter? We get hooked into and it destroys us. It destroys our own home economics, doesn't it? The money, the safety of our home, the provision that we have for our family, it destroys it. It destroys the relationship between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. It destroys relationships between husbands and wives. And we think it's just the issue, and it's not. It is the enemy prowling around and saying, I will destroy you, every part of you. We think it's the issue, but the issue impacts us socially, economically, in our family, and in our worship. I can't go to church. They would never want me there. How many of you heard? Invited a friend to church, right? And what, what do some of our friends say? If I enter church, the roof will cave in, right? Why? Because the enemy has whispered a lie in their lives that you're so broken, you're so destroyed that you can't even worship. Did you see what, did you see what Joel said? In verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Her hopes and dreams are gone. Hopes and dreams. Gone. The grain offering, the drink offering are cut off. Those are, those are elements of worship in that day. They're cut off. We've chosen to live a life. We've chosen to give in to. We've chosen to surrender to something else, not realizing that it's destroying us. We've chosen to give in to something else because it was loud and it was flashing and there were cool lights and there were hip people and there were all these people telling me we should and we should and we should and we should. And so we do and we do and we do and we don't realize incrementally over time it is destroying us. Socially, relationally, hopes and dreams, economically with our, with our bank accounts and the ability to do what we would want to do or, or, or give the way we would want to give or serve the way we would want to serve or even just have retirement or even just have a home. How many people are losing their homes? How many people are losing their bank accounts because of the addictions that they've been, that they've been sucked into? The enemy is destroying everything. 
It is spiritual, yes, but it is spiritual in a way that affects the everyday living of our lives. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Be ashamed, oh, tillers of the soil, right? Tillers of the soil. Those of you that are going to wake up tomorrow morning and go to work, tillers of the soil. The vine dries up. Our livelihood is destroyed. And then in verse 12, and gladness dries up. It affects us emotionally. Some of us haven't smiled in a long time. Some of us have family and friends that haven't been glad in a long, long time. And we walk into it because it's not bold, it's subtle. Because it's not frequent, it's just now and then. We walk into it. And the volume of the world begins to drown out the voice of God. And here's the thing. You and I, we know it's not right. Can we just be honest for a minute? We know it's not right. Many, many, many of us get the check in our spirit. And we know it's not right. I know I shouldn't live this way. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't enter into, I know I shouldn't. It's just for a moment and it's not that big of a deal is the lie that we tell ourselves. We're listening to the volume of the world. Twice this week, twice this week. Actually, actually on the same day, two different people, from two different parts of the world, said the same thing to me, hours apart in two separate conversations. They said this, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. These are two different people that live in two vastly different continents, two vastly different worlds. And they said the exact same thing about the Christians in the world today because of all the volume of the world and the enemy around them. We need to wake up. And what did Joel say? Hear, listen. He stopped short of using the words, but what he's saying is wake up. Listen to what is going on. Listen to this instructions. Verse 13, what do we do? What do we do? says this, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld. We can't worship anymore is what he's saying. Verse 14. Now verse 14, if you see it in your Bible, is carried through the rest of, of Joel. You'll see this instruction. What do we do? Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Only if we had a game plan, right? Gee, I wonder what we could do in our lives 
to, to ignore the volume of the world and listen to the holy roar of God. If only there was a game plan, what would we do? God's pretty quick. So he gave us one. Did you see it? First of all, we need to realize what's going on. That was Joel 1, verses 1 through 12. We've got to realize what's going on. Verse 13. We need to turn our hearts to God. I've, I've got to be honest with you. Over the last two, three weeks, if I've been preparing this, I don't know. My, it has been so distracting to put this message together. I've been trying to find the right words. I've been trying to find uh, how to be eloquent. You know I can't be eloquent. So anyway, I'm trying to find the right words to inspire. Look, I don't, I don't even know what to say anymore other than this. We need to turn our hearts back to God. Period. That's it. We need to turn our hearts back to God. I always find it interesting when churches plan revival services. You ever, you ever been a part of a church like that? They're mostly from other geographical locations in the country where they have these churches. Like, we're going to have a October 18th through the 22nd. We're going to have revival services. Okay, I'm not really sure you can plan for revival, but I understand what you're trying to do. How about this? How about we just hold each other accountable and just say, let's revive our own hearts week after week and just speak truth into the lives of each other. Because again, a congregation will only receive revival as the individuals in the church receive revival in their own hearts. So my question to us today is this, are we willing to turn our hearts back to God? And I don't know what that looks like for you because it looks different for everybody. I can't prescribe what it looks like in your life other than this, other than this. And here was the, here was the, the layout, right? Repent. Sackcloth. Did you see how many times sackcloth was, was used in Joel? And sackcloth is a, is a kind of burlap fabric that, that is worn uh, in, a, in an exercise of mourning and penitence. Sackcloth means, means it's time, it's time to, to repent of where you're at. The church, the church leaders need to repent in their own hearts. The people, the congregation needs to repent. It says to lament, Right? Lament in our, in our own hearts. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Lament a cry out to God, a, a, a rendering of our own heart and realizing where we are. A sadness because of how far we've grown away from God. Third, consecrate a fast. Consecrate. Like that's action language. Like don't think about it. Do it. Consecrate a fast. Set it apart. These are the days where I will refrain from so that I can give my attention to Consecrate a fast. It's a spiritual discipline. Consecrate the spiritual disciplines. Why did we do the 21 days of prayer? Spiritual discipline. That we would be people who would walk in that way. Call a solemn assembly. Call a solemn assembly. Hey, let's get together and let's pray about what is going on in the hearts and the lives of people. If only there was a day and time when we could gather people during the week to do that. When would that be? Maybe on a Sunday morning. Maybe in our Sunday school classes. Maybe in our small groups. Maybe in our homes with friends. Maybe in honest conversations over lunch with each other. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the people. Gather the elders 
and all the people. Wes, get the list going. Come on, get, get, the, get that email out. Get the, it's time, it's time, let's go. Let's get the elders together, together with all the people. Let's lament, let's repent, let's cry out to God, God, what are you doing? What do you want from my life? Let's come to the church. And in verse 14, cry out to the Lord. As our worship team comes back out to lead us as in closing, what would happen if we took seriously the words of Joel? What would happen if we took seriously the words of Joel? What if over the next few weeks we took seriously looking at our own hearts and in our own lives and asking God this question, God, what do you want of me? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to lament in? What, what discipline do I need to practice in my life? Not because it makes me better, but it, because it draws me close to you. God, what do you want from me? What if we asked other people to pray for us? Again, this isn't a judgment of where you are in your own personal life. I don't know. Other than I know this, we all live in a world where the locusts are destroying what God has given to us. And we are being tempted and we are being pulled away. And the question becomes this, will we as individuals first and foremost listen to the holy roar of God? Because the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. The Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. I'm wondering if over the next few weeks, if God would revive our hearts. That's my prayer. And so this morning, we've purposely left communion at the end. What greater way, what better way to reinforce the words of Joel the prophet and the challenge of the Spirit this morning than to look at the table of what Christ has done for us. And to think to ourselves, is there a way within me that needs to be revived? Is there something in me that's keeping me from the presence of God? Is there something in me that I need to confess and to come back to God in this moment? I'm going to invite you to take your communion cup. If you don't have one, lift your hand. Our our ushers and greeters would be happy to get one to you. Anyone? I think there's one in the upper deck. Anybody else? Perhaps over here, if, if we could make our way. Just simply lift your hand. The scriptures remind us that we should be careful when we take communion, that we should examine ourselves. And so this morning, as we consider the words of Joel, would we examine our own hearts? And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to lead you in the opening of communion. And then as we sing and worship the next song, when you're ready, when you're ready, Take the bread and drink the cup as your heart is ready to worship.
with God. For on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He was gathered with his disciples and they were sharing the Passover. He took bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke that bread. And he gave it to each of the disciples sitting at the table there. And he said, this is my body. It's given for you. And he invited them to eat at that moment in the meal. Later in the meal, he took a cup. And he said, this cup represents a new covenant. This is a symbol of a new promise between God and man. That the redemption of sin, the forgiveness of sin now rests in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he invited them to take it and to drink. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's an act of repentance. It can be an act of lament as we think about our sin. It's an act of joy and praise as we remember what God has done for us in Jesus to bring us back to him. And so as we close our service, I'm going to invite you to stand and to sing this song. And when you're ready, take and eat and drink.